say that you are to me on the telly. You say that you're tired of me protesting. Children dying every day. My name is nobody, but I can't wait to see your face inside my door. Oh. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this second day of March, 2008. I'd like to remind all my listeners that you can find the documentation backing up all of the statements made in today's episode from my website, www.corbettreport.com. I'd also like to direct my listeners to the articles section of our website, which has been gaining some notoriety recently, as one of our stories made the top story on PrisonPlanet.com last week. And on that note, it's time for the real news. Our first news story this week comes from the Seattle Times, February 29th, 2008. Should roads have tolls to fight global warming? Two global warming bills likely to pass the legislature this session could open the door to tolls on major highways in the central Puget Sound region as a way to reduce traffic and greenhouse gas emissions. Environmental groups consider the bills critical to a larger effort to get people out of their cars and into public transportation. Transportation accounts for almost half of the state's greenhouse gas emissions. House Bill 2815 requires the state to sharply reduce greenhouse gases between now and 2050. It also calls for slashing the number of miles traveled by vehicles in the state by half in the same time period. The second bill, House Bill 1773, says tolls should be used to reduce greenhouse gases. It would allow tolls to become permanent and to vary in price based on the time of day. Both bills passed the House and are in the Senate. They're expected to become law. Our second real news story this week comes from the Huffington Post, February 25, 2008. Government concedes vaccine autism case in federal court. Now what? After years of insisting there is no evidence to link vaccines with the onset of autism spectrum disorder, the U.S. government has quietly conceded a vaccine autism case in the Court of Federal Claims. The unprecedented concession was filed on November 9th and sealed to protect the plaintiff's identity. It was obtained through individuals unrelated to the case. The claim, one of 4,900 autism cases currently pending in federal vaccine court, was conceded by U.S. Assistant Attorney General Peter Keisler and other Justice Department officials, on behalf of the Department of Health and Human Services, the defendant in all vaccine court cases. The child's claim against the government that mercury-containing vaccines were the cause of her autism was supposed to be one of three test cases for the thimerosal autism theory currently under consideration by a three-member panel of special masters, the presiding justices in federal claims court. Keisler wrote that the medical personnel at the HHS Division of Vaccine Injury Compensation had reviewed the case and concluded that compensation is appropriate. The doctors conceded that the child was healthy and developing normally until her 18-month well-baby visit when she received vaccinations against nine different diseases all at once. Two contained thimerosal. Days later, the girl began spiraling down into a cascade of illnesses and setbacks that, within months, presented as symptoms of autism, including no response to verbal direction, loss of language skills, no eye contact, loss of relatedness, insomnia, incessant screaming, 
arching and watching the fluorescent lights repeatedly during examination. Our final real news story this week comes from the Corbett Report, February 25, 2008. Lone gunman producer questions government on 9-11, wonders why TV writers could accurately predict the attack while the government couldn't. Cast and crew of The X-Files attended WonderCon 2008 in San Diego this weekend to discuss the upcoming X-Files movie. During the question and answer, one intrepid audience member asked Chris Carter, creator of X-Files and The Lone Gunman, about the pilot episode of The Lone Gunman, which eerily predicted the events of 9-11 that took place in New York mere months after the episode aired on TV. Carter, looking slightly flustered, turned the question over to The Lone Gunman producer, Frank Spotnitz. Spotnitz admits he was disturbed that if we could imagine it, crashing planes into the World Trade Center, our government didn't, and I didn't understand why we weren't prepared for a tragedy like that. After raising this very valid point about the government and military's complete lack of response on the morning of 9-11, he then quickly dismisses any suggestion that the pilot episode's uncanny prediction of that attack was anything more than a coincidence, as the story was produced merely from an active imagination. The episode in question featured rogue elements of the government hijacking a plane by remote control and attempting to fly it into the World Trade Center in order to launch wars in the Middle East. Welcome to episode 35 of the Corbett Report, entitled The Panopticon. Now, while that term might be familiar to some of you, and maybe unfamiliar to others, let's start by taking a look at some of the news articles which relate to this idea of the panopticon, and which will become important in my eventual analysis of that term. Let's start with this article from the Seattle Post-Intelligencer from December 25, 2007. Airport profilers, they're watching your expressions. Quote, Travelers at SeaTac and dozens of other major airports across America are being scrutinized by teams of TSA behavior detection officers specially trained to discern the subtlest suspicious behaviors. TSA officials will not reveal specific behaviors identified by the program, called SPOT, screening passengers by observation technique, that are considered indicators of possible terrorist intent. But a central task is to recognize microfacial expressions a flash of feelings that in a fraction of a second reflects emotions such as fear, anger, surprise, or contempt, said Carl Macario, who helped start the program for TSA. In the SPOT program, we have a conversation with passengers and we ask them about their trip, said Macario from his office in Boston. When someone lies or tries to be deceptive, there are behavior cues that show it, a brief flash of fear, end quote. Let's follow that up with this article from the AP, September 27, 2007, headline, Chicago Video Surveillance Gets Smarter. Quote, On Thursday, the city and IBM Corp. are announcing the initial phase of what officials say could be the most advanced video security network in any U.S. city. The city of broad shoulders is getting eyes in the back of its head. Chicago is really light years ahead of any metropolitan area in the U.S. now, said Sam Doknovich, who heads video surveillance consulting for IBM. Chicago already has thousands of security cameras in use by businesses and police, including some equipped with devices that recognize the sound of a gunshot, turn the cameras toward the source, and place a 911 call. But the new system would let cameras analyze images in real time, 24 hours a day. You're talking about creating something that knows no fatigue, no boredom, and is absolutely focused, said Kevin Smith, spokesman for the city's Office of Emergency Management and Communications. For example, the system could be programmed to alert the city's emergency center whenever a camera spots a vehicle matching the description of one being sought by authorities. The system could be programmed to recognize license plates. It could alert emergency officials if the same car or truck circles the Sears Tower three times, or if nobody picks up a backpack in Grant Park for, say, 30 seconds. End quote. Of course, that ties into another article from allheadlinenews.com from December 10th, 2007, under the headline, Beijing Olympics Will Use IBM High-Tech Surveillance System, which goes on to talk about that same surveillance system which is being implemented in Chicago. 
I won't read through that report right now, but you can get all of these reports from my website, CorbettReport.com. Let's move on to another report from TheGuardian.co.uk from August 9, 2007. Security firms working on devices to spot would-be terrorists in crowd. Quote, counterterrorism experts have drawn up plans to develop an array of advanced technologies capable of spotting would-be terrorists in a crowd before they have time to strike. Scientists and engineers have been asked to devise many ways of analyzing people's behavior and physiology from afar, in the hopes they may reveal cues about their mental state and even their future intentions. Under Project Hostile Intent, Scientists will aim to build devices that can pick up telltale signs of hostile intent or deception from people's heart rates, perspiration, and tiny shifts in facial expressions. End quote. That report ties in with other articles that have been mentioned in previous episodes of the Corbett Report, including one from BBC News from 29th of January 2007. Could X-ray scanners work on the street? And one from USA Today, under the headline, Lobster serves as model for new X-ray device. One of the most chilling articles about the encroachment of surveillance technologies into our everyday lives, however, has to be this one from the Daily Mail from just last week, 23rd of February 2008. Roadside cameras that detect blood will catch lone drivers who abuse car-sharing lanes. Quote, Motorists will be targeted by a new generation of road cameras, which work out how many people are in a car by measuring the amount of bodily fluid it contains. The latest snooping device on the nation's roads aims to penalize lone drivers who abuse car-sharing lanes and is part of a government effort to combat congestion at busy times. The cameras work by sending an infrared beam through the windscreen of vehicles which detects the unique makeup of blood and water content in human skin. The system's inventors believe it will catch out motorists who try to fool existing CCTV road cameras by placing mannequins in passenger seats or fixing photographs to windscreens. End quote. Now, I don't know about you, but that report sends shivers down my spine. It's absolutely ridiculous to me that a government effort to combat congestion in carpool lanes would require the purchase of multi-million pound CCTV camera systems that use infrared detectors to detect the unique makeup of blood and water content in human skin to count how many people are in each car. That anyone would buy the cover story that this is to catch those people who use mannequins or pictures taped to their windscreen in order to fool the current cameras must be absolutely drinking the Kool-Aid and not noticing the erection of a police state control grid being erected around them. What the ultimate purpose or endgame of implementing this type of technology is, though, relates to the title of today's episode, and that can be garnered from this article from National Geographic magazine, posted on nationalgeographic.com, under the headline, Watching You. This article reads in part, Think of your life before the answering machine, the ATM, email. Think of your grandparents' lives before the television and the airplane. Think of your great-grandparents' lives before the telephone. All told, the shift will be that substantial. Machines will recognize our faces and our fingerprints. They will watch out for swimmers in distress, for radioactivity and germ-laden terrorists, for red-light runners and highway speeders, for diabetics and heart patients. Imagine devices that monitor the breathing rhythms of infants in cribs, watch toddlers at daycare, and track children as they go to and from school. They can keep an eye on our home supply of orange juice and let us know when the milk is sour. Machines might watch our calorie intake and burn-off, monitor air quality in our homes, and look out for mice and bugs. Envision sensors as large as walls and as small as molecules in your bloodstream, sending quiet signals to nearby computers, which will process and relay information to you, your doctor, your lawyer, your grocer, your building manager, your car mechanic, your local fire or police department. As time and technology march on, Less and less will escape the attention of sophisticated machines. They'll have us covered. End quote. Now that story is troubling enough in all its implications, 
and especially the way in which it presents this technology as something good or something which will help us in our day-to-day activities. Oh, good, well, our milk won't spoil in the fridge, and, well, nothing will happen to our children because they're being watched by cameras all the time, so I don't have to look after them. And, wow, these cameras will even help to detect rats or bugs in my house. Well, I'm sold. Of course, the underlying principle behind this all-seeing eye of surveillance technology which is being introduced to us gradually in society comes from this sidebar, which runs underneath the main Watching You article from that National Geographic page. It's one of those sidebars meant to be taken as a trite little introduction to a tidbit from history and runs under that all-too-familiar sidebar headline, Did You Know?, Did you know, in 1791, Jeremy Bentham gave the name Panopticon to a circular structure designed to permit a few guards to watch a multitude of prisoners. His design for the Panopticon, or Inspection House, incorporated a ring of single-room cells several stories tall. Each cell was open towards the interior of the ring and had a window in the wall on the outside of the ring. In the center of the ring stood a watchtower occupied by observers who were completely concealed from the prisoners. The principle behind the panopticon was that each single-room cell offered its inhabitants no place to hide, while outdoor light coming through the window on the outside wall provided the watchers in the tower with a well-lit silhouette of the inmates' every move. Knowing that any observed misbehavior would bring punishment, but not knowing when any behavior actually was being observed, The thinking inmate had no choice, in Bentham's opinion, except to behave as if always watched. The inmate would monitor his own actions. Although Bentham's intent was to provide humane and unfettered order to institutions that sometimes used brutal methods to control and intimidate residents, to many modern eyes he devised a surveillance machine so cunning it verged on the diabolical. End quote. So there you have the description of the panopticon, which is the organizing principle for today's episode. The Panopticon presents us with a metaphor for the surveillance control grid by which a very few number of elite are able to keep control over the vast masses of humanity by simply erecting a system in which citizens are always being watched. Now, the justification for putting this system into place is all too evident. In another sidebar from that very same National Geographic article, we have this poll question. Since the attacks of 9-11, the effort to track down perpetrators and thwart future terrorist acts has many concerned about how far surveillance might intrude into our lives. How much privacy are you willing to sacrifice for the sake of security? Voice your opinion. And then it gives a link to vote on that online poll. I don't have the stomach to click on that link to find out what the poll results were, but I'm wondering if they even included the possibility of someone voting none at all. Let's take a moment to reconsider this panopticon idea of Jeremy Bentham. What we have in the panopticon is an architectural structure that embodies the system of control of the masses. In the panopticon structure, a single watchtower is capable of seeing into every cell and observing the behavior of every individual prisoner. The key to the system, though, is that of course there aren't enough guards to be watching every movement of every prisoner, but since the prisoners can't tell when they are being watched, they act as if they are always being watched. In effect, they save those who wish to control them from the work of actually having to observe them. This is a very important point and goes to the very heart of the surveillance technology grid which is taking shape around us. This point has been made many times before, so let's go to one of the most famous examples of this panoptic principle being applied to how society itself is structured and governed. Michel Foucault, of course, was one of the most famous French philosophers of the 20th century, and Foucault wrote about how the panoptic principle was used to control societies in his book Discipline and Punish, about the history of the prison system. Let's listen to a clip from a speech given by by Michel Foucault about his book, Discipline and Punish. In this clip, he discusses how the penal system was taken over by social reformers who believed that the role of the penal system was not merely to incarcerate those who had committed crimes, but to actually reform them into new, better citizens. 
then to be released back into society. Foucault goes on to describe how this principle has been used in other aspects of society. Let's listen to this clip from Michel Foucault's speech. They found that prison and imprisonment could be a very good means, a very good tool in order to not only to punish but to reform prisoners and inmates and this uh, uh, reform, this uh, change in the mind, the attitude, in the behavior and so on, uh, uh, how could they imagine they, they can obtain it through disciplinary techniques? And those disciplinary techniques, where did they found them? In school, in the army, where they have been used since the middle of the 17th century. And they have tried to build penal institution on the model not of the ancient prison, but on the model of school, army, and so on. And so, you can see the penal system as an expression or a consequence, one of the last consequences of this disciplinary system, which has been developed in, order, in other institutions. And as it happens often, this final uh, application of the disciplinary system became then a model for a new development of those disciplinary techniques in other fields. And the, uh, the panopticon, the Bentham panopticon, is very uh, interesting from this point of view because Bentham had this idea of a panopticon in order to organize a good prison a good prison where people could be treated, uh, formed, uh, uh, reformed, and so on, as in a disciplinary institution. And then, after the, having this idea, he had the idea that this panopticon could be used also for factories, for uh, uh, schools, and so on. Now, as I say, Foucault goes on to talk in that clip about how the panoptic principle is applied in different aspects of society, always for the same end, to gain control of the masses by a few at the very top. It quickly becomes evident that when we talk about the panoptic principle, we're not merely speaking about the idea of people being watched in an architectural structure, as Jeremy Bentham described, or even just talking about the idea of being watched in the visible sense, as in cameras always watching us, or people always watching us. Instead, the principle can hold any time when our data is being collected and stored, data about things that we've bought, things that we've done, places that we've gone, people that we've met, people that we've spoken to, conversations that we've had. All of this data is relevant and can be recorded and stored in a centralized position for those who seek to gain control over society through panoptic principles. Foucault gives the example of insurance companies, which collect large amounts of data on its customers, which, when compiled, can give a fairly extensive account of someone's life. Of course, in our day and age, it's the government from which all of these blessings of the panoptic society flow, and an idea of that comes for the drive in many of the developed nations around the world at this present moment for a national ID card, which will have biometric identifiers to help protect us from those evil terrorists who, of course, could never obtain such identification. To get an idea of how the panoptic principle applies to the national ID cards, let's take a listen to this YouTube clip about how the Labour Party's drive in the UK to adopt a national ID card system is part of a larger panoptic principle of turning the entire society into a type of prison. 1787, an architect invented the perfect prison and called it the Panopticon. The prisoners would be seen wherever they were, but would never know if they were being watched. It was designed to control the prisoners using surveillance alone and was seen as the ultimate power of mind over mind. No Panopticons were ever built, but Tony Blair's most expensive legacy will be to have turned the entire country into a perfect prison. The government wants to put a tracking device in every car on the road. 
surveillance cameras are being connected to directional microphones, as well as facial recognition software, so they will always know where you are and what you are saying. But we can make choices in spending too. And instead of wasting hundreds of millions of pounds on compulsory identity cards as the Tory right demand, let that money provide thousands of extra police officers on the beat where they can actually protect people. But now New Labour want to spend billions of our money on compulsory ID cards. We will pursue identity cards because they're right. We think it is legitimate and right in this day and age to ask people to carry identity cards. It is the right thing to do. Within a few years, you will be forced to carry an ID card, which will store a goldmine of private information, which will be uploaded to a database called the National Identity Register. Every time you interact with the state, it will form an audit trail, so the government will know your entire life's history. This will be linked to your medical records, your school records, and your DNA structure. Gordon Brown has already said that he will sell your information on to big businesses, whereas computer hackers will be able to get it for free. Now that clip discusses the UK version of the national ID card system, which has been proposed and is being implemented by the Labour government formerly under Tony Blair, but now under Gordon Brown, who seems to be pressing ahead with the creation of this national prison. And I suggest that you check out the website of the No to ID movement in the UK, which gives information about the status of the national ID card and its implementation by the UK government. And coincidentally, the exact same type of system is being proposed in the United States. Under the Real ID Act of 2005, state-issued driver's licenses or personal ID cards will have to follow a set of minimum standards in order for people with those ID cards to board a plane or access a federal facility. According to the Department of Homeland Security website, these minimum standards include information and security features that must be incorporated into each card, proof of identity and U.S. citizenship or legal status of an applicant, verification of the source documents provided by an applicant, and security standards for the offices that issue licenses and identification cards. Now, while all of this sounds very reasonable, what such glib phrases fail to reveal is that information and security features that are now going to be standardized among the states on the state driver's licenses and ID cards will include biometric identifiers as well as other information that will now be accessible from a centralized database. So what does the controlled corporate media in the United States have to say about this encroaching fascist police state? Show us your papers, please. Well, let's turn to MSNBC for that answer. The Real ID Act, a post-9-11 plan to improve security rules for driver's licenses. Finally, details were unveiled Friday, and it's going to mean big changes in the way we get and renew our most common form of ID. NBC's Pete Williams has more on the story. Good morning, Pete. Amy, this is something that will affect nearly everybody that has a driver's license. That's more than 200 million of us. We'll all soon face more scrutiny when these licenses come up for renewal. Responding to a storm of protest from states, the Department of Homeland Security says it will delay by nearly a decade the final deadline for real ID, a requirement that Americans get a more secure driver's license if they want to use it to board planes and pass federal security checks. We think going forward with this rule is a fair balance between important security measures and the need to make sure we are cost-effective in what we do. To lower the costs, Real ID will concentrate first on younger Americans, starting with the age group most terrorists have come from. Within the next six years, by 2014, anyone under 50 must get the new, more secure ID. For everyone else, the deadline is 2017. Getting Real ID will require showing up with documents to prove identity and home address. The states must also add security features to make licenses harder to counterfeit. The Homeland Secretary says it will be worth the cost and bother. It prevents someone from evading a watch list and getting on an airplane and blowing the plane up because they pretended to be someone else. Second, it uh, damages or just takes away one of the major tools of illegal immigration. 
And Secretary Chertoff says by phasing this program in over the next nine years, it will cut about 75% off the cost to the states, Amy. And Pete, speaking of states, I understand there are still quite a few who are resisting this, this notion of a, of a secure or a real ID. What then happens to those residents of those states that are still resisting? Some states have actually even passed laws saying, no, we're not going to take part. And I think Homeland hopes that the states that have rejected real ID as either too expensive or not worth the trouble will now reconsider. These states have until May to say whether they will join the program. But if they still say no, then their residents, as of this May, will no longer be able to use a driver's license to board an airplane and will need some other form of accepted federal ID and for most people that'll mean a passport. Alright Pete, so we all know the lines at the DMV are notoriously long. <laughs> what happens now with this now overhaul uh, when I go next time say to the DMV to renew my driver's license? Okay, well when you renew your current license and switch over to Real ID you will need to show up in person. You can't do this online or in the mail. You'll have to have your picture taken, they'll get your digital signature and you'll have to bring a document to prove that you are who you say you are and your current driver's license won't work for that. The state will verify those documents and do a computer search to make sure that nobody else with your name and social security number has a license in any other state. And by the way, Homeland says this is one way that they'll help to uh, reduce identity uh, theft. That'll take some time, so don't expect to get your real ID license the same day. It's going to be mailed to you, most likely. All right, and I'm sure there will be long lines, as usual. Pete Williams, <laughs> thank you. I trust that I don't have to point out for my listeners the spin and whitewash involved in that report, but I'll do so anyway. Of course, that report presents the only real opposition to the Real ID Act as being people who are opposed to long lines at the DMV, or states that are concerned about the cost of implementing such a system, rather than the people's legitimate concerns about the governmental invasion of basic privacy into the lives of its citizens by collecting all of this data and storing it in a centralized database. The problems and potential for abuses with such a system are numerous and rampant, and the growing trend to get all manner of biometric identifiers from palm prints to finger scans to iris scans to digital photographs put into such systems is a disturbing tip of the hat to the eugenicists that we have featured in previous editions of the Corbett Report. Indeed, the entire idea of the panopticon and the idea of the collection of all of this data relates very much to the previous episode of the Corbett Report, episode 34, The Scientific Dictatorship. Regular listeners to the Corbett Report will remember that in that episode, Aldous Huxley told us that the scientific dictatorship is an attempt by the controlling oligarchy who have always existed and presumably always will, to use Huxley's own words, to get the people to accept and even enjoy their own enslavement by using modern scientific techniques that can even alter people's basic physiology. And it's in that regard that we can understand these national ID databases which are seeking to collect so much data on each and every citizen. Because of course it's not just biometric identifiers like fingerprints or iris scans that the authorities are seeking to collect on citizens. But the data that they want to centralize in these types of databases includes DNA, the very structure that makes us who we are. That can perhaps best and most easily be seen in the UK, which seems to be a type of canary in the coal mine on many of these basic privacy rights issues for whatever reason. Let's turn to a Times Online article from August 2nd, 2007, entitled Police Want DNA from Speeding Drivers and Litterbugs on Database. It reads in part, quote, Police are seeking powers to take DNA samples from suspects on the streets and for non-imprisonable offenses such as speeding and dropping litter. The demand for a huge expansion of powers to take DNA comes as a government watchdog announced the first public inquiry into the National DNA Database. There is growing concern among MPs and civil liberties groups about the number of children under 10 and young black men on the database, the biggest in the world. But a number of police forces in England and Wales are backing proposals that would add millions more samples to it. End quote. Now, on a positive note, we have this follow-up from that story, which came out just last week, February 24, 2008, from The Observer on theguardian.co.uk. Tough police DNA powers are rejected. Quote, Controversial plans that would see the police given sweeping new powers to take DNA samples from people arrested for the most minor offenses, such as dropping litter, have been rejected by the Home Office. End quote. 
It's not difficult to understand why people might be nervous about the government collecting their DNA for such minor offenses as dropping litter on the street. And we've even had Lord Justices in the British Court last year or police constables this year arguing that every citizen in the UK should be part of this DNA database. It's easy to see how this DNA database could be the ultimate system of panoptic control, as it would give the government the power to see into your very genetic code, making it the ultimate all-seeing eye. This obviously relates back to a lot of the issues covered in episode 34, The Scientific Dictatorship. You might remember that in that episode we took a look at an article by Philip Collins called The Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship, which again is an interesting and informative article which I recommend to my listeners. Well, for more information about the scientific dictatorship and how it relates to panoptic principles of controlling the society by monitoring every aspect of the citizens' lives, let's turn to a conversation that Philip Collins had with Red Ice Creations, an internet-based podcast which emanates from Sweden. Let's listen to an interview that Red Ice Creations had with Philip Collins and Paul Collins last year about the panoptic age. In this long and wide-ranging conversation, Philip and Paul Collins discuss with Red Ice Creations the ideas of the panoptic principles as they're applied in modern society. This clip starts with them discussing the DNA database and its ramifications, and talks about some of the conditioning which is an inherent and important part of the panoptic system. Would you guys tie in, uh, you know, other types of of surveillance under this umbrella? Uh, kind of like, you know, let's say the the creation of a of a global database of people's DNA stuff like this. Well, that's that's definitely that's definitely what we see things moving towards, and the uh, that initiative has been on the table and has been circulating around in elite circles for for years now, yeah. for for uh, decades. Uh, I think, though, that the, uh, I mean, um, uh, it promised software when it was stolen from uh, the Hamiltons by Ed Meese and then uh, sold to several uh, several different uh, uh, intelligence a- agencies all over the world. Uh, are, are you talking uh, about the uh, the Human Genome Project now? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. 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 Well, that that fits in that uh, that fits in as as well. Um, you know, where you can basically catalog people by simply looking at DNA. Mm. I think though that the goal is uh, to to basically really move beyond technology because, like Phil said at the, at um, the, be- the beginning, mm. um, the, the 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 psychological impact is what's important. Yeah. Uh, mm. If it, if if you can begin uh, to uh, impress upon people uh, the the need to police themselves yeah, by just yeah. having uh, all these different uh, these different forms of surveillance uh, begin to, to begin to uh, pop up, mm-hmm. uh, then then eventually you won't even need the those those high those uh, high tech forms of surveillance. That's people true. will. People will naturally do it, uh, do it uh, themselves. <laughs> yeah, so basically the goal is yeah. the internalization of the rules and regulations. Hmm. Um, it, it, it's much like a many some some zoo animals, like some some uh, gorillas that have been in captivity for quite some time. The uh, uh, their their captivity has been so prolonged, and uh, they've been so. Uh, you know, so conditioned to the, uh, the to their conditions and circumstances uh, of being in a cage that some some uh, gorillas won't even bother getting out of the cage if you open the door. Hmm. Uh, the reason being is because uh, on on a deeper psychological level, the gorilla has uh, internalized uh, the the rules and regulations, and although freedom might be just beyond uh, just beyond the the gates and mm-hmm. just beyond the walls. Of the zoo, um, the the uh, gorilla. Some gorillas no longer even uh, proceed beyond that point. That's that's the same the same essential the same essential principle behind panopticism. Is some, for instance, uh, some uh, business establishments that have uh, cameras. Um, some of those cameras aren't even uh, don't even have film in them. Um, I, I've worked 
<laughs> I've worked retail mediocrity for yeah. a good portion of my <laughs> life. And uh, at one uh, one uh, department store that I worked at, yeah. um, they had black domes that were supposed to contain cameras. Well, one day, one of those uh, black domes in the ceiling uh, fell open, and a maintenance man went to fix it. And I, I looked in, in, into it, and I saw, like, uh, where's the uh, camera? And uh, he says, oh, there is no camera in some of these. There's only yeah. a camera strategically placed in some of these black domes. Indeed, the, yeah. the rest of them are just positioned there to give people the impression of being watched. Yeah, I had yeah. a similar I had a similar experience too working the service sector in a uh, in a the department store that is qu- rather quite popular chain here in the United States where the store was literally r- ringed with with black with black domes all <laughs> over mm. the uh the the ceiling and uh but then you would go into the back room where the uh with where, where the uh store security was and you would see a small uh a small little room with with one with one television screen <laughs> and uh exactly and so i was i basically got to the point where i was like this doesn't add up and uh, an older gentleman about 73 years old at the time that i worked with that had been around the the barn more than once uh, basically said, "Well, look, you can't possibly think that they'd have cameras in every single dome because <laughs> it's every it's every other tile that it's in, yeah. and all you know that's obviously just for the psychological effect. Yeah, the same, and, the and same and principle applies when we're talking about panopticism. Yeah, yeah and, and guys, yeah, it's the same thing actually up up here in Sweden. There is, and this is again, this is out in the public, so to speak, that uh, many of the traffic cameras up here, you know, to monitor people if they drive too fast and so forth." Uh, they they can basically do a snapshot of your uh, of your head and your license plate, and they you know automatically sends a bill to you you know if you drove too fast or something like that. But uh, anyway, a lot of these cameras that are up there um, are are actually you know dummies basically or you know em- empty shells just sitting there in the box you know. Uh, and, and again, and a lot of people know this, but they can't be sure about it. So you're definitely right. This is a theme that seems to be running. Uh, you know, th- n- not over, uh, not only then in the U.S. but also up here in, in nor- northern Europe at least. And w- just, I wanted to squeeze in here before we c- uh, continue. Uh, it's to me, it's quite interesting that I've chosen this, uh, these little black domes basically. But because in a sense, it it uh, reflects kind of the you know the uh, like a black eye or an eye in the sky that actually is panoptic in in a sense that it can go round and round. <laughs> do, do you agree on that? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Uh, basically, what we're dealing with here is again is is uh, a, a form of uh, a semiotic uh, semiotic warfare, and yeah. Yeah. semiotics is basically the use of signs, and uh, uh, basically the, the iconography that's associated with these surveillance programs already has a, a psychological effect upon uh, upon the percipient. Already, yeah. the percipient uh, is is. Uh, beginning to uh, get the impression that they're under the ubiquitous uh, gaze of others. That clip is important because I think it amply demonstrates that the panoptic principle is not just about surveillance. It's about the surveilled subjects internalizing the idea of that surveillance and thus surveilling themselves, making sure that anything they do, anything they say, or anything that they can outwardly project is done so in a way that does not bring suspicion towards themselves. Part of the idea of announcing programs like that one we heard at the beginning of today's episode with the behavior experts from the TSA monitoring all passengers through major international airports in America is that people will eventually start to monitor their own actions. They will police themselves and make sure they give out no outward signs of anything that could be interpreted as a terrorist act. Eventually, all dissent will be stifled. Before moving more on to that point of conditioning, I'd like to bring up another aspect of the collection of data, another facet, another pupil in the all-seeing eye, as it were. Of course, it's not just the government that's collecting data on citizens. As Foucault points out, the cooperation of multinational corporations like the insurance companies is essential in the creation of this type of all-seeing, all-encompassing surveillance system. That businesses would have something to gain by the creation of these large databases should be evident to anybody who understands how information is used by large multinational corporations to gain advantage in the marketplace. 
and the major corporation's willingness to break the laws of the country and cooperate with the government in surveilling citizens who are doing nothing wrong and have broken no laws is all too evident from debacles like the NSA spying program, which I hope to get into in a future edition of the Corbett Report. And such things as InfraGuard, a system that we mentioned in the Real News section of the Corbett Report a few weeks ago on the podcast. For more information about InfraGuard, I wholeheartedly recommend to my listeners a conversation that I had recently with Nico, the geopolitical analyst from geopoliticalmonitor.com, who was featured in episode 29 of the Corbett Report. In our monthly conversation for February, we discussed InfraGuard, along with other subjects that are taking place in the geopolitical world today. But right now I'd like to turn to another aspect of the way in which businesses can nexus in with the government in spying on citizens, and that's the creation of a cashless society. The dream of the cashless society, of course, is the dream of a global control grid over the economic lives of the human race. It's hard to underestimate how important the cashless society is to the plans of those who would seek to enslave humanity. And of course it relates to Aaron Russo's claim that we heard in an earlier episode of the podcast that Nelson Rockefeller confided in him that 9-11 and the whole war on terror was part of a long-term plan whose endgame was to get the entire population chipped and to make all economic interactions between people reduced to the exchanges of electronic credits on the chip so that if those running the system wanted to, they could suppress all dissent by turning off the chips of those who resisted thus ending their economic existence. That the cashless society is one of the dreams of the international financial oligarchy might be garnered from this article from Monday, March 12, 2007 from the Belfast Telegraph. Cashless society by 2012, says Visa Chief. Quote, Paying for goods with notes and coins could be consigned to history within five years, according to the chief executive of Visa Europe. Peter Aliff said that by 2012, using credit and debit cards should be cheaper and more convenient than cash. Some retailers could soon start surcharging customers if they choose to buy products with cash because of the greater cost of processing these payments, he warned. Visa Europe briefed the British Retail Consortium last month on new contactless cards that can be waved in front of a scanner to make small payments. End quote. Of course, these contactless cards are smart cards, soon to be embedded with RFID chips that will be able to track people wherever they go and start to create a financial record that can be matched with records of where they have physically gone to start to create a complete and total understanding of an individual's thoughts, movements, actions, and purchases as he travels throughout space and time. And to get a better understanding of the ramifications of these types of technology, What better place to go to than one of the businessmen who is seeking to bring this to the masses? Last week, the Corbett Report talked to Trevor Warner, a businessman in Australia who is seeking to bring wireless, cashless payment options to customers in various industries. This type of technology, for example, could be used by taxi companies. Once installed in the taxi cab, these devices, which are essentially cell phones with added peripheral software and hardware, could be used to scan the smart cards of customers entering the taxicab. Conceivably, your entire personal and financial history could be at the fingertips of the taxi company at the moment that you step into the cab. You wouldn't even have to say a word to the taxi driver, and he could already know who you are and what you've purchased. Of course, in the hands of well-meaning businesses, this is not a problem. But in the hands of a corrupt multinational corporation, or in the hands of a governmental agency like the NSA, which is in charge of snooping on all wireless communications sent through the United States, this type of technology could be used to gain even more panoptic insight into the lives of everyday citizens. Let's turn to a clip from that interview, which again is available from my website, www.corbettreport.com in which I discuss the technology and some of its ramifications with that businessman, Trevor Warner. So I understand that the product um, that you deliver is primarily for processing electronic payments, as you say, or processing payments right away. But I understand there's also a number of software peripherals that can add on to this uh, basic product to suit customers' tastes. Can you tell us about some of the peripheral software that might be available? Yeah, well, that's uh, that's it's an ongoing um, 
ongoing features that are being added to the device. Um, security is a big one. Um, as as you, your audience may or may not know, uh, Visa and MasterCard are, are moving from a, a signature paperwork type system into an electronic PIN number. Um, our device has got the capability of uh, being plugged into like a similar like your, your in-car cell phone kit that allows you to talk while you're driving. Um, and, and to that device, we can attach things like um, infrared thumb scanners, similar to what's on uh, Microsoft keyboards and, and mouse pads and uh, laptops these days. Very similar. Um, if you if we want to take it to the next level, we could we could probably even configure uh, retina iris scanning. Um, it's just it's just peripherals and it's just software, uh, and of course the the network to be able to um, transfer that data. Uh, successfully or and very and securely to the bank for authorization and then back to our device um, but we can also as data is flowing along those lines we can also take copies of that um, of that data for our own storage and our own reference and uh, I'm sure NSA uh, was probably already doing that anyway so. yeah I'm sure they yeah. are well um, so this technology also has uh, smart card reader capabilities yeah, that's right. Um, the uh, the device takes um, just your standard bank account access cards, uh, Mastercard, Visa card, Diners, Amex. Um, what else is there? All, all the all the uh, those types of payment systems. Um, but, but now SmartCard is starting to take security to one level further, and also um, like in-store cards. Oh, I'm not too sure what you what you have in America, but like in Australia, we might have. Um, Flybys, which is a loyalty program, um, we can provide things like that that's built into the smart card, uh, and also the RFID smart cards. Uh, we've got the capability of of um, configuring that type of system as well. So I suppose theoretically, this technology could be used to scan any sort of RFID tag that a customer might have, from driver's license or passport to a product tag or whatever. Well, that's the interesting thing there, James. Um, like, I'm not a, I'm not a technician. Um, I know I don't know uh, how these protocols work. I just know from our from our technical guys that um, Visa and Mastercard are going to RFID uh, down the track into the smart card. So I guess um, those customers or the, the the customers using those cards. Um, if they walk within, um, I guess uh, the, the the distance is about two meters six feet um, from one of our terminals, we can pick up the signal from that RFID device, but um, we can't uh, we can't authorise or authenticate any transactions. So I, I guess you, your money or your funds are safe in that respect, but we know or we can tell, uh, we know the identity of, of that person and they haven't even, they may not have even used our service. Now, I'd like to encourage my listeners once again to go to that interview on my website to listen to the entire exchange between me and Mr. Warner, because I think it's quite clear that Trevor Warner is a, an honest individual who really does see a lot of the potential for abuses of such a system. And I think that interview makes obvious that he is working in the best interests of his customers to protect the privacy of his customers. But the very existence of this technology points to a more fundamental facet of the Panopticon, which was referred to earlier in that interview with Phil and Paul Collins by Red Ice Creations. And that's that the Panopticon is fundamentally a system of control in which people control themselves by being conditioned to the idea of being constantly surveilled, because they know that they are at least potentially always under the gaze of the all-seeing eye. And this is perhaps made most evident in a growing move in society towards a self-policing snitch state, where it's the duty of well-meaning citizens to spy on each other and rat each other out for any perceived offense. This is not a point I take lightly, and it's a point that I elaborated on in an article for the Corbett Report from February 14, 2008, entitled The Snitch State, Stasi-style secret police system forming in Canada, Britain, U.S., and this report reads in part, quote, Jennifer Stoddart, the Privacy Commissioner of Canada, has given her own valentine to Canadian citizens. A 48-page report warning them that the RCMP, Canada's national police force, 
is keeping thousands of files on regular citizens in secret databases which cannot be seen by the accused. The news is perhaps unsurprising, given that the McDonald Commission reported in 1981 that the RCMP had been involved in all manner of illegal activity in their attempts to spy on Canadian citizens, including breaking into citizens' homes without warrants, and even conducting electronic surveillance of a member of Parliament. One of the many disturbing facets of Stoddart's report are the examples she cites of information for these secret files coming from citizen informants. In one case, a man was put into the secret database because a resident of his daughter's school neighborhood saw him entering a rooming house and, believing drugs were involved, called the police. The police investigation concluded that the man had only stepped out of his car to have a cigarette, but the file was still in the National Security Databank seven years later. Another incident cited in the Stoddart report involved a neighbor who saw two men carrying something that resembled a large drum wrapped in canvas into their house. Police were called to investigate, but found nothing resembling the reported item, yet the data was still sitting in a top-secret databank five years later. As Stoddart points out in the CBC story on this report, this is potentially disastrous for the individuals named in the files, because it could potentially affect someone trying to obtain an employment security clearance or impede an individual's ability to cross the border. This report follows on the heels of news from London that a man was arrested, fingerprinted, and had his DNA stored in the British DNA database because a passerby mistook his MP3 player for a gun. What these seemingly disparate reports point to is a growing movement to turn the citizens of so-called free democratic nations into a self-regulating secret police saving the government the hassle of keeping tabs on everyone by delegating the duty to an unwitting public duped by a phony war on terror. That this is part of a concerted effort on the part of the authorities to inculcate paranoia in the public is suggested by this ridiculous police training video from Michigan teaching people how to be good informants. Report on everyone, everywhere, for doing anything. The seven signs of terrorism that I will talk about today include surveillance, elicitation, test of security, acquiring supplies, suspicious people who don't belong, dry runs or trial runs, and deploying assets or getting into position. The first sign is surveillance. What should you be looking for and what should be reported? During the planning phase, a terrorist will often conduct surveillance on a possible target. They do this in order to determine the strengths and weaknesses of their target and response times of the emergency responders. Routes to and from the target are usually established during the surveillance phase. Examples of surveillance activities include someone recording or monitoring activities, drawing diagrams, making notes on maps, using vision enhancing devices such as binoculars, or possessing floor plans or blueprints of places such as high-tech firms, financial institutions, government or military facilities. Any of these surveillance type acts may be a sign that something isn't right. If you feel that you have observed something suspicious, do not dismiss it, but report the incident to the police. Now that video is several minutes long, and that's just a representative extract. So I encourage you to go listen to the entire thing for yourself on YouTube. But as ridiculous as that video appears by itself, I hope in the context of the information that's been presented today, the overall picture of what is being encouraged in that video is well understood. Anyone, anywhere, doing anything is potentially a terrorist and therefore should be reported to the police. I'd like to meet the makers of that video so they could explain to me how a tourist on vacation would look any different than a terrorist based on that description from the video. Making notes on maps? Using vision-enhancing devices like binoculars, suddenly this makes you a suspicious person? Surely not. 
but it's obviously part of the inculcation of the mindset that we are in a panopticon. We are being watched at all times, and we must display at all times every outward appearance of doing nothing out of the ordinary, or we will be reported as terrorists. It's really time to wake up and realize what is at stake with these issues. If we just lie down and accept this conditioning, we become part of the Panopticon system and admit that we are living in a prison. If we fight to tear down the walls of that prison, we might have a fighting chance of stopping the erection of this police state control grid in its tracks. So what does someone who's managed to break through this conditioning sound like? Mayday! 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 Total criminals have seized control of the government. They've brainwashed the police and turned them into attack dogs. The North American Union has been set up. We're going down worldwide. Mayday! Mayday! I mean this. I'm serious. For the whole world, mayday! 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 They're now starting to censor our communications. They're killing and arresting more and more patriots. Mayday! 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 The United States has been seized by the New World Order. Mayday! 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 Everybody, you've been mesmerized and conditioned incrementally to accept it. Wake up to what's happened. Mayday, 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 mayday. Scientifically crafted psychological warfare programs are working in unison to deliver us into total tyranny. They're preparing for a worldwide depression to consolidate all the wealth and totally enslave us and launch World War III and endless wars. Mayday, 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 mayday. I mean, we've got to take this serious. Mayday! Mayday! I'm here going down with the ship! Mayday! 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 We're under attack! The entire Western world's been seized by criminals and they're using scientifically developed techniques to brainwash and condition us to lay down. You've got to break your conditioning. Police, military, people in the government, please listen to me. There's toxins and poisons in the water. They're putting poison in the water to condition us. It's a toxic sedative, sodium and stannous fluoride both. Major studies going back to the 30s, 40s, 50s, and even today. Mayday, mayday, mayday. All different forms of brain tumors are up several thousand percent. Hundreds of major scientific studies show it's causing huge brain tumors with the radiation emitted by cell phones. Mayday, 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 mayday. We're under attack, ladies and gentlemen. They're pointing machine guns and screaming at our children. Do you understand they're conditioning us? They're building FEMA camps. They've abolished the Bill of Rights. Mayday, mayday, mayday. I've sacrificed everything I am, everybody I'll ever be, to fight this thing, and I'm telling you, it's even more horrible than I thought. It's moving quickly. Mayday! 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 Nothing else needs to be said. Mayday! Mayday! This is a global transmission against tyranny. We are in an information war, and this is an info bomb. Deploy it in the field, set it off on people, blow people's minds with this information, wake them up to the police state, and let's tear down this panopticon together. I leave you today with the only words of relevance at this juncture, the words of Patrick Henry from March 23rd, 1775. Thank you for joining me today on the Corbett Report, and join me again next week for another edition. It is now too late to retire from the contest. There is no retreat but in submission and slavery. Our chains are forged. Their clanking may be heard on the plains of Boston. The war is inevitable. And let it come. I repeat it, sir. Let it come. It is in vain, sir, to extenuate the matter. Gentlemen may cry, peace, peace. But there is no peace. The war is actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God! I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death!
what course others may take. But as for me, give me liberty or give me death. 